don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 47 and today we're talking about The Last Wave from 1977 directed by uh, Peter Weir. Uh, an Australian film, although the the star of it is American, which is kind of strange. Uh, but Peter Weir making his his second appearance, right? Yeah, the Truman, Truman Show. Show. I feel like there was another one we mentioned. Oh, uh, Witness. We talked briefly about in the Amish episode. Yeah, and this is before he sort of, I guess, hit the scene real big in, in American cinema. Uh, and this film, from what I can tell, is pretty well received. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it qu- quite a bit, although I will say it has that kind of, I don't know if this is just like a 70s thing, but it kind of, for me, drags a little bit in places. It's a little bit slow. Things take a long time to develop. It's a real kind of slow burn. Yeah, and the movie's only an hour and 45 minutes, but you're right. There is there is a little bit of drag in there. Um I'm not sure what exactly causes that. You know, sometimes you can watch like a three hour movie and it just goes by so quickly Mm -hmm. and you want more. And sometimes you watch a movie that's an hour and a half and it feels like three hours. That's like there will be blood is over two hours, right? Yeah. It's like two two hours and 20 minutes or so. it, It never, even though it has a lot of like slowly building scenes, it never really feels like it's dragging. And maybe this because like some of it is, more kind of episodic kind mm-hmm. of in a way um but n- not to say that that made this film bad by any means it's just as i was trying to watch it before we started recording i was like i need this to hurry i need to find out what's going on here yeah uh, yeah but that might have well, something think, to do with the, the idea of time that comes up in the movie we'll, we'll talk about that. oh yeah. yeah 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 well and i think that's you know the, that sort of issues come up before on this podcast and I, I think probably the most immediate things we'll have to say are comparisons because there's a lot this movie i'd never seen it before but it felt very familiar in terms of and, and that's not a criticism um but it's it seems to follow a, a very similar uh sort of pattern that a lot, uh, at least a couple of other movies that we've talked about uh, also follow. Yeah. Um, so to just like, I guess, cover the, the basics, we have guys having premonitions or like visions or dreams, whatever you want to call them, uh, directly tied to seeing the, these aboriginal men. Um, one of them is, is Dan- I'm going to have to look at his name because I always mess up saying it. Uh, da, 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 David Gopalil, I think is how you'd say that. I don't know. Gopalil, uh, yeah. Gopalil. Like, that's how it's spelled anyway. Yeah, and we were saying that that's, he's sort of the go-to Aboriginal actor. <laughs> he seems to be the only guy that gets cast for those roles. Even in, I'm pretty sure, well, he shows up in, in this movie Rabbit, Rabbit Proof Fence that I'm a fan of. Mm. Um, and maybe he showed up in The Leftovers too, although I can't really remember. Um. But, yeah, so you have this character having premonitions, um, and then they slowly start to sort of intertwine with reality to the point where you don't know what's real and what's sort of his dream experience. 
and and part of the pattern is 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 the theme of this uh you know by all everything you just said happening western rationalism is kind of called into question and overturned um and a more sort of uh experiential kind of spirituality is seen as as a more accurate discerner of reality yeah and and it's all sort of wrapped up or sort of i guess more symbolized by these strange weather events that start happening um so it's almost like you know you, like you're saying western rationalism comes under attack at the same time that the west and its cities and its settlements are under attack by these extreme weather events um and, and I think what might back that up is that the first one we see is it takes place at a school, right? So you think mm-hmm. of like a, a Western school as this place of like, if you want to take like a negative connotation, this place of like indoctrination and, um, you know, social reproduction, that sort of thing. Uh, and we see a school get just like annihilated by this hailstorm. Um, yeah, and you see on the board, like on the chalkboard, it's it's clearly either science or geography lessons, mm-hmm. and a- as if to say, uh, you know, it's sort of like Peter Weir saying, "Here, boys and girls, I'm going to give you a, a a lesson in geography and science uh, yeah. with this movie." <laughs> yeah, uh, and science and geography, you know, uh, were really effective and strong colonial tools as well. Um, Still are more or less, right? You think about like how important borders are now. Yeah. Um, But that, that hailstorm is interesting because uh, you have the goat and like, it's not (laughs) supposed to be funny, but the goat was kind of humorous to me. He's in the schoolhouse, (laughs) like freaking out. (laughs) Yeah. You, at the beginning you have the goat and then at the end you have the owl uh, while the house is, you know, being torn apart by the storm. Um, and I, I kind of, I thought the movie was going to come back to the school. You know, I thought that was going to be a something that came into play in the story, and it doesn't really, unless I missed it. No, it, it was kind of the, the way I was reading. It was almost like in the day after tomorrow, or one of those disaster films, where you have that like first place where it happens, right, um, right, and, and then it cuts to NASA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but here we, we cut to, to a traffic jam in Sydney where it's just like pouring rain. Yeah. And you have in that, once you get to the city, you have, uh, I know there's at least two, I can only think of one right now where on the side of the bus, there's like a, a zoo advertisement. Hmm. Um, well, there's some sort of logo with a, with like a tiger or a lion or something on it. It's just, it's just showing how uh, distanced the city is from wildness. Like here's here's our experience of wilderness in the city is a zoo, and you know using animals, you know images of animals to to sell shit or or whatever it is. Um, but but something I also noticed when they when they go to the city when they we first cut to the city maybe the first time or, or within the first minute of of being introduced to the main character uh, Richard Chamberlain uh, playing David Burton I believe his name is mm-hmm. uh, he's looking out a window and I think windows are a 
major player in this movie. Um, you, uh, there's one scene. If you look carefully in the background, you can see behind uh, Burton written on a window, just like maybe it's like, it's like someone wrote it with their finger in dust. It looks like it says "Do not open." Yeah. Did you that. see that? Yeah. And and then at the end, when the when the storm is there, the windows are broken by the trees. And and at the beginning in the school, it's the window <clears throat> that breaks open. Um, and when I think there's wife. a lot going on with that. I think, yeah, on a, on a very basic level, wind uh, windows. Uh, I was actually just watching a, a video uh, yesterday uh, of a talk James Howard Kunstler gave, who who we talked about a little bit on this podcast, and you know he talks a lot about architecture, and he he says a window's job is to negotiate the inside and the outside. Uh, and he points to this terrible, you know, giant skyscraper. And it's talking about how windows don't open in skyscrapers uh, and how they've they're Therefore they've failed at their, <laughs> at their job. And, and, and so I think you can, you can maybe apply that logic to the film and, and, and take a sort of environmental uh, perspective on it and say, if a window's job is to negotiate between inside and outside, you see, uh, elements of nature kind of, uh, penetrating into culture, sort of nature, you know, uh, infiltrating culture. And, and, and I think there's also a way to read as, as we've talked about also on this podcast, there's a way to read in almost any movie, you can almost you can read a a house as a metaphor or symbol of the protagonist's mind, and and the same way uh, his mind is sort of being infiltrated by these dreams and images of catastrophe. The house is being infiltrated uh, by the weather. You know, the little girls at the beginning. It's like they're playing in the rain as the uh, bathtub over overflows and the it's dripping on the stairs, and so you're seeing you're seeing culture or the cultured mind being reclaimed in a way by nature. Yeah, and to sorry, just making a note real fast, but the the window idea I think also sort of shows up. Uh, kind of halfway through the movie when his wife sees the aboriginal i don't know what he would be sort of shaman or whatever um oh yeah, yeah. outside or whatever i'm so respectful the shaman or whatever uh, Char- uh charlie is that his name yeah um yeah. sees him through the or, you know her daughter sees him first and then she sees mm-hmm. him and then they you know she freaks out and like sends the kids away and all that um so, you know, that might be another instance of a, a window being a sort of barrier where he's standing out sort of you know, in this weather that's happening and they're inside like afraid of him and, you know, whatever his, you know, mysterious influence could be. Um, but another thing that makes, you know, you think about like divide between the, the inside and the outside between, you know, nature and human culture and all that sort of stuff. Uh, 
but also makes me think about this this sort of two-sided world that we get in the movie that you sort of see physically at the end where you have kind of the the tribal aboriginal world um in this kind of underground cavern this kind of subterranean thing kind of makes me think of parasite like yeah building upon things that have been forgotten about or that people don't think about anymore and so you have you know the city of sydney built on top of it but you know those those ways of of being in the world and interacting with the world represented by the tribal land doesn't go away just because this city is on top of it it's sort of like you know you have these horror movies where you like build your house on an ancient indian burial ground or whatever um kind of like that on a citywide scale it seems um yeah and you you have i think that trope itself exists you know for a reason because i mean america is sort of built on a ancient indian burial ground yeah for sure and uh, of our own making right and very similar yeah. yeah with australia and a lot of other those those settler colonial nations um which is kind of it was kind of interesting to watch this movie because this is made in 1977 mm-hmm. and the views expressed by at least a few characters about the aboriginal people are, is are pretty you know woke by today's standards uh, whereas I feel like if you had a movie at the same time made in America about Native Americans, it would not, <laughs> you know, have that same kind of, of yeah. attitude. And so, and I think Peter Weir may be, you know, I, I I think I think maybe this movie's a little bit ahead of its time. And I I think the other lawyer character. This mm-hmm. is just my sort of feeling. It seems to me like the other lawyer that's initially working with. Burton is is supposed to be representative of the mainstream attitude in Sydney to the Aboriginal peoples, which is uh, he he hates them just as much as he hates everyone else, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's there's no he, he calls Burton's attitude towards Aborigines uh, uh, romantic, and he thinks. You know, he thinks that Burton is being kind of disrespectful in a way by sentimentalizing him, sensationalizing, romanticizing yeah. them. Um, he keeps saying, like, of, there there are no tribal, there are no tribes here. This isn't tribal land. And, it, and you're right. It sort of has this feeling of there's no tribes here because we eradicated them. That's sort of the the gist that I'm getting. Um, and you know, all the tribes are out in the, in the bush or in the outback or whatever, and and they're not here in the city. This is our land that we've not really claimed, but our land that we've sort of corrupted and sort of cleansed in a bad way. Yeah. And there's this this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that makes, you know, that, that perspective true. It's like a, we, we eradicated it by force. And therefore, there are no tribal, uh, you know, there's no tribal cultures here. So, well, that's because you got rid of them or tried to. Um, and I think you see that really poignantly in the courtroom scene when um, Chris is going to testify. And there's just a brilliant close up on his hand on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um and then, and then it cuts to the jury who are all white people. 
and you just left to think what a charade this is what a, and and like i said a self-fulfilling prophecy it's like of course these people are going to be wrong if you are judging them you know through a mythology that is not their own uh with people who don't even have the awareness that there is another way of thinking you know acting as their jury like um it was just a very in a very short amount of t- a short amount of time the movie communicates the absurdity of the situation yeah and the 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 other lawyer is is sort of uh, prepping the jury and saying this trial has nothing to do with past interactions between white people and the aboriginals and the you know the terrible things that we've done to them um which shows you know like i was saying that kind of woke attitude but at the same time is kind of con- condemning them because if you don't take that into account then then what happened by law is just like a murder and so they mm-hmm. go to prison or, or whatever um and that's but they, kind of, and they're not willing to participate yeah you know you know chris sort of sabotages himself in a in a narrow kind of legalistic perspective mm-hmm. uh, obviously he he doesn't consider it self-sabotage because he's trying to protect some sort of you know sacred culture that he that he is part of uh, but you see there is a sort of some sort of long-lasting loyalty to to this culture that a lot of people don't even know about as certainly not the people on the jury or the judge or the other lawyer yeah, and and that's where he like he starts to tell the truth on the stand, um, and then after a while he he you know sees uh, I've already forgotten his name, the uh, the shaman guy in the Charlie. Charlie sees Charlie you know sitting in the courtroom. They this movie went out of its way to make the names easy for us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I'm just ugh. but um. So sees Charlie sitting in, in, you know, in the back and, and then he flips and is like, no, I'm not going, I'm going to say that I was just mixed up because your questions were confusing and that's a long time ago and no, we got drunk and we had a fight and that's all. Um, so, it, you know, it's just interesting to see him, him go back on that to, like you're saying, sort of protect the culture to kind of protect himself a little bit to, um, you know, it, well, and, and like you're saying, you see his hand on the Bible and he's swearing to tell the truth according to this you know, white man's construction of, of, of how the law should work. So in a way, like, he's like, I, you know, I'm not lying. I'm just not, you know, telling the truth in the way that you want me to (laughs) that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, It it sort of gives you the impression that there is no way for him to tell the truth in the courtroom. Yeah. He can only do it to Burton because they have, and, and this is something in the movie that's a little, it's not flushed out very much. And, and it sort of, uh, I don't know, might be a little problematic, but that he can only tell Burton because they share some sort of distant tribal connection. And they, you know, they mentioned this at one point that like, Oh, you, you must come from a tribe. You must come from some tribe in South America mm-hmm. or something, which is, it, it's a little strange, but I guess that's the way that they used to sort of justify why they would ever let this, you know, white man sort of, into this inner circle at all right and it seems like maybe that is just a a stand-in for 
you know, the, the fact that he's opening himself to this new way of experiencing and, and that he tells them his dreams, which involve these, you know, sacred rocks, uh, they can see that he is, uh, open to their ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, maybe the film feels like it has to have some sort of like thing, you know, like, Oh, we're, you know, connected by tribes or whatever. Um, uh, but that's it. Uh, essentially it seems like that willingness to be open to that way of perceiving the world is what makes, uh, Chris and Charlie trust David. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a term well, a similar term. I use this in my classes all the time when I'm talking to students. I say, you know, ways of knowing, ways of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they they never ask me what I mean. I think they just sort of like try to figure out what I'm talking about. Um, but I use it usually in, in reference to sort of alternative viewpoints and not necessarily like spiritual ones, but like we'll talk about Aldo Leopold and the land ethic. And I talk about the land ethic as a way of being in the world, sort of way of existing and going about your daily activities and that sort of stuff. Um, so I just wanted to like point that we've, I don't know if we've ever like specified what we're talking about when we say Yeah. I, I like those terms too, because well, first of all, they sound a little bit better than the word ideology. Yeah. Like uh, you know, that sounds to me, that sounds kind of harsh and, and maybe has like a Marxist connotation to it, which nothing wrong with a Marxist connotation, but, but I think ways of being or ways of knowing are, are maybe more specific than ideology. There's probably different ways of knowing within the same ideology. And you don't really Uh, have to get into like epistemology and ontology and all those ology words. I was Uh, thinking uh, epistemology is a, is a word that stuck in my head after watching this movie. And doesn't, doesn't the word epistle like mean letter? If yeah, I'm not like mistaken, the epistles of wh- right. whoever wrote those, and, John, <laughs> I don't remember. And I don't know the etymology of, of all this, but it it's, I just had the passing thought that epistemology has like the, the very word has a bias towards like logos in, in its, in its very name. Like we use, the word epistemology to mean how we know things, but it connotes like the written word. If, 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 uh, you know, if epistle is letter, um, and there's, you know, that's just one of, of a, of a million ways to, to know. Right. Um, anyway, that, that's just the rabbit hole. My mind went down. No, yeah, it's almost like it's almost saying it's a way in which we understand something because we have quote unquote written it that way, right? So we've perceived it that way, therefore we hold it to be true that this is how things are. Yeah, Um, yeah. Which is, I don't know, and in this movie, that's a that's a big sort of current that goes through is just these ways of being in the world or ways of knowing things, and and they even talk about it in pretty explicit but still kind of confusing terms when. Chris is is talking to Burton about dream time and he's trying to explain it to him. 
and you know he says different it's like it's a shadow it's a it's a way of being able to know things and see you know that kind of stuff um and it does so in a way i think that doesn't take what is a sort of valid and valuable belief system of a group of people and turn it into like ooh spooky time Uh, that that kind of stuff right because it's so practical you know uh i really like the ending of this movie in terms of it's like they don't mystify this place. It's like the, the, the sacred site is literally a cave under this like sewage site. Um, it's not some magical mystical realm. It's like, no, this is where the, this tribe used to, I don't know. I don't know if it's like a place of worship or, or, you know, ritual or something like that. Uh, but it used clearly it was, uh, important in their tribe. Uh, and you I kept thinking that they were talking about some sort of realm as opposed to a literal place. Um, so yeah, it, the, the, the movie itself avoids mysticism and, uh, uh, romanticization of the, tribal culture yeah um you know and having it as a physical place sort of makes a statement that the this belief system is something that is very uh material and that it's it's based in the actual land it's not like you're saying some sort of other realm it's literally here in like the ground beneath our feet this is what's important um which you know does a lot to sort of tie it to being underneath this city, sort of the big city on the continent, uh, you know, symbolizing colonialism and all this sort of stuff. Um, just showing how the, those things overlap and, and exist materially. And because they exist materially, they are, uh, you know, open to being destroyed by natural events, uh, which kind of, comes up at the end, even though we also have, you know, like the house being destroyed and things flooding mm-hmm. throughout the movie. Um, and the, what well, we can talk about the end, but if, if you, if there's something else you want to talk about before we get there. Well, just, just to make clear the comparisons we've been alluding to, um, take shelter mm-hmm. is basically, you know, a very similar story. Instead of kind of indigenous spirituality, you have in Take Shelter, you have um, mental, uh, the mentally ill as it's like as mid- a sort of a sort of repressed. Uh, I guess I guess the movie sort of says what causes what we label mental illness may be. Uh, ways of knowing that are not consistent with the status quo or the mainstream ways of knowing. It's like medicalization uh, of alternative ways of knowing. Yes, yes. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of parallels, especially with that last, the last scene. They're both on a beach. The storm is coming. Uh, I guess it's not a storm. It's just a wave, really, in the last wave. But it's a storm uh, coming uh, uh, in take shelter. I also, I also think there's a lot of similarities with 
uh, Gun Island. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities with Embrace of the Serpent. All of these stories are about Western rationalism confronting um, older, more sort of uh, uh, in tune with the earth ways of understanding. Um, and yeah, and sort of the white Western rationalism is called into question and, and hopefully overcome with with an environmental ethic sort of undergirding it all. Um, so like I said, this is a, a very familiar pattern that we see in The Last Wave, which I just read was released in the United States under the title Black Rain. I don't like that as much. I don't, I don't know why. What's wrong with The Last Wave? Well, that's, the Black Rain is like what's falling in the movie, right? And you see a headline at one point that says Black Rain. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it can also tie to carbon emissions, oil, that kind of thing. Um, all things that are sort of black rain meant to be sort of a reminder of the, the sins of the past kind of being revisited mm-hmm. upon the present. Um, and this also reminded me of, and I know you haven't seen this show, but uh, The Leftovers. Oh, yeah. Because um, there's a whole the final season of the leftovers largely takes place in Australia. Um, and it's tied to sort of like Aboriginal culture and how their belief system has, or offers sort of a portal to understanding this thing that has happened, which is, you know, half the population or more disappears all of a sudden. And people, um, think it's the rapture and all this sort of thing. And so, um, In that last season, you get a lot of sort of Aboriginal culture stuff kind of coming in as a a means of trying to sort of better people trying to understand what has occurred and try to figure out, you know, what their place in it is and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. Um, So it's been used a few times, um, not always by Australian authors or or directors. More like ABBA unoriginal. (laughs) Um, and then you, you had a, you made another comparison. Can't remember what it was now. Embrace the serpent. Embrace the serpent. Definitely. Especially since he, you know, he mentions, you know, having that, that kind of, um, South American tribal connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you have that, that storyline of like the Westerner trying to get information from the, the more tribal person. Um, but that wasn't it. There was another one you mentioned. I, Maybe I'm mistaken. I can't remember. A gun Island. That was good. That was one. I don't remember. Yeah. Not important. Uh, Before we started, you you mentioned it and I was like, I hadn't thought of that, but it was something that like you're way more familiar with than I am. So I couldn't remember what exactly it was. Um, You're talking about like a comparison to something? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it'll come up later. Um, Anyway, like I said, I wasn't going to be able to add a whole lot to it anyway, so so that's fine. Um, so yeah, it's it's always interesting to see that kind of idea of um, challenging perceptions of the world. Um, it, it seems like they always have to end up in some sort of apocalyptic scenario too. So like, mm-hmm. take shelter or here, it's it's your your perceptions 
your ways of understanding the world are only being challenged because there's some sort of massive chaotic event on the horizon. It never seems like it happens just because you need to be aware of that or you need to be aware of these ways of knowing or you need to like expand your perception or whatever. It's always some sort of end of the world scenario. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I remember we talked, uh, I don't remember which episode, but we talked about climate change, um, how people sort of think that the way climate change um, suggests we need to live, which is, you know, more locally and more uh, like bioregionally, um, climate change did not cause those thoughts initially. Like people have been living or ha- have felt compelled to live in harmony with nature forever. Um, unfortunately now it's a, a, it's sort of a countercultural thing in a lot of ways, but, uh, you, you just look at like Thoreau was not responding to a political catastrophe. Um, you know, it's, that's a, an interesting point you make because you get this sense now with that, you know, because climate change is so, so talked about that all these, these ideas of living in harmony with nature are kind of new and, and, and that they are solutions to the problem of climate change. And that is very far from the truth. I mean, they are solutions to climate change, but that is not all that they are. They, they, they predate it, uh, Big time. Big time. Big time. I haven't, I haven't said big time in a while. Hang loose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and again, that's something I, I run into with my, my students sometimes of, of saying that, you know, people think of, about like the environmental movement as a relatively recent sort of thing. And, you know, realizations about climate change and that sort of stuff have sort have uh, spurred, you know, growth in in that movement and sort of converted people um to use religious language over into it um but those ideas have been around for forever and we go back and read like you mentioned thoreau or or uh john muir those kinds of people and we see that in america at least in american discourse that those sorts of ideas have been around longer than the country's been here and then when you go into Native cultures, those kinds of ideas have been around for, you know, generations, millennia. For, forever. Yeah, I mean, literally just, forever. Just, just intrinsically before industrial society. Yeah, and and they don't go away. It's just the, the only reason they sort of – and that sort of makes me think of Parasite too, where you have Native American culture being trivialized and made into like a child's plaything and this sort of like silly act that they they're doing at the birthday party and that sort of stuff. Um, so you're taking these beliefs that could have, or, you know, very likely do have uh, very useful applications to our, you know, modern white American lives and just wholesale disregarding them and, and writing them off as childish little playthings, Um, or as, you know, things that, 
they have their culture and we have ours and never the twain shall meet that sort of separate thing. separate but equal <laughs> yeah which is very much the the feeling you get in uh in uh the last wave uh it just made me think of like when they're introducing the guy is introducing burton to the the aboriginal men they're on trial and he's like if you don't behave he won't he'll quit on you that that's you know just being very sort of paternal to them mm-hmm. um so yeah, by discounting these beliefs just offhandedly, um, or or you know being overly academic about it and being like, uh, you know, separating it out, you can miss a lot of things that have been around literally forever that could help us better understand like what kind of place we should hold within you know the world. Yeah, there's there's a sense of of in in Burton in uh I keep going, yeah Burton's uh plight uh, a sense of recovery um and, and that's another part of the trope uh is, that we've seen in a lot of these stories is the protagonist has to feel like they are going crazy um and what they're really doing is recovering a a former way of seeing knowing understanding uh that that has just been sort of repressed in the larger culture or or oppressed as the case may be mm-hmm. yeah and and you know otherwise there is no conflict i guess if they just accept it um or the conflict would then change and be more about like everyone around them imposing this sort of uh uh, diagnosis of, of insanity upon them. Uh, it's much more interesting, I think, from a, especially in a cinematic uh, format to see someone struggle with their own kind of inner turmoil and insane, you know, thinking they're insane. Uh, it, it doesn't really, in the last wave, it doesn't really, I don't know, Burton doesn't really seem like he's struggling that much. He's very kind of stoic about it um there's a lot of scenes of him just like waking up like huh and, and that's about as far as it goes uh yeah he's though, just he he's more open to it than you expect him to yeah. be and his uh, wife when his wife says you know that i've sent the kids away i'm leaving too he's like yeah it's probably for the best <laughs> he's like i get i get it i never liked you anyway whereas in take shelter you know curtis's you really feel and part of it's michael shannon in such a great performance in that film but you really feel this guy like thinking he's losing his damn mind yeah i mean he goes to the he goes to the counselor or the therapist uh and and he you know he has supposed mental illness in his family tree uh, yeah that that movie is anxiety inducing because you are you know seeing the world through his eyes and you kind of feel like you're going crazy that, that was another connection to take shelters that opening scene uh, i thought of take shelter immediately in the last wave when you hear thunder and there's no clouds or, or anything in the sky which is you know very similar to that scene in take shelter where He's like, are, are you? He's asking his buddy if he can hear it, and the guy, you know, thinks he's going crazy because there's nothing to hear, at yeah. least in his mind. Yeah. Is anybody seeing this? Anybody seeing this? Yeah, very, very sort of similar 
situations, but yeah, the reaction's a little bit weird. And, um, and I think part of it is like you're saying, like Burton has a better frame for understanding what's going on. Whereas Curtis is just like, has no clue what the hell is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, except in the only framework he has is this Western medical framework in which he's like, Oh, well I'm crazy. I'm schizophrenic mm-hmm. and there's no other explanation for this other than the things I'm, you know, imagining are, are actually happening, which he can't accept. Um, whereas Burton has yeah, he doesn't, kind of a guide. He, he doesn't have a guide to, yeah. on this journey. Whereas Burton has Chris, uh, Curtis yeah. has his counselor sort of until she moves and then he doesn't have anything. Um, so we, but you know, even, even she is just looking for a diagnosis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, there's an interesting, cause there's a pretty prominent scene in Joker where his, you know, he's talking to his counselor and she's like, Oh, you're, we, our program has been cut by the city. We can't meet anymore. And that's the famous scene where he's like, where he's like, you don't even listen to me. He's like, ask me if I have any negative thoughts. All I have are negative thoughts. That that thing. Um, and so there's a there's a pretty cool discourse. Well, not cool because it's actually reflective of reality. Um, but uh, this thing that keeps coming up in in films where someone trying to get access to mental health care and they either can't or they do, but then it's not very good, and then they're abandoned by that person. <laughs> that that kind of thing. Seems like yeah, it, and it's been and it's almost worse. It's almost wor- uh, to have access to substandard uh, mental health care is almost worse because at least without it, you have the illusion that there is a solution to your problem. If you get if you get access to it, and it's just someone trying to diagnose you and not listening to you then uh, that that can be very despair-inducing, I would imagine. Like, oh, this is the solution to my problem? Yeah, and it's like, I so I listen to a lot of podcasts and different things, and I hear people talk about how they, oh, I have to go to therapy, or like, oh, in therapy I brought this up, or this sort of thing. And it, it's always sort of mentioned offhandedly as if it's just like a thing everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um. And that is not the case. Like maybe, you know, in New York, I would say it's maybe a little bit more widespread or like large cities in general. Mm-hmm. But like growing up, I didn't know anybody that went to therapy at all. Well, you <laughs> didn't know anybody that was willing to tell you that they well, went to therapy. Well, I, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, also that. But also like it just wasn't for one, there was the stigma. And for two, it just wasn't available. Right. Because maybe, it's not. Yeah. Available. But y'all just didn't have crazy people in your town. Yeah. Well, you know, we grew up the right way. We had uh, two parents uh, and uh, two Mountain Dews every a day. A dad and a mom. No two dads. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was all the Mountain Dew uh, straightened our neurons out. Yeah. It's all the, the uh, little Debbie and Mountain Dew <laughs> sorted us out. Um, but yeah. It was, it's just uh, we were so high above elevate, you know, the elevation above sea level, so high. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Um, no, we, I think you're right, and and I think uh, in the '70s, there's the weird sort of uh, cultural uh, uh, sort of class marker of like being in analysis, you know, and like Freudian psychotherapy. Yeah, it's like was, a Woody Allen type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every movie Woody Allen made in the '70s is just like got a line about you know jokes about going to your analyst my my shrink yeah 
Um, and, and you know, that's, I, I think I'm, I'm not trying to like shit on therapy. I think it's, it's very vital and important. Uh, and if you need it, you should definitely have access to it. It's just like most people or, uh, well, yeah, fuck it. I'll say most people who, who need it, uh, don't really have ready access to it. Um, and if they do, it's in the forms that we're talking about where it's, it's kind of given to you as a bare minimum. Um, so. yeah. And, and, uh, the dominant schools now are cognitive, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral CBD? therapy, CBT. Got to take CBD. Okay, cool. Uh, that, that's, yeah. that's the new therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Vaping. Um, but no, so you get there and they'll just tell you to, uh, you know, it's uh, mindfulness has started as kind of a fringe thing. And now it's, it's becoming more and more part of the, uh, mainstream therapeutic process, which there's nothing intrinsically wrong with, you know, paying attention to your own thoughts. But, but then there's this sort of culture that builds up around it. And, 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 and the only problem I have with it is that it, it, uh, it's kind of reductive and it's in some ways it seems lazy on the therapist's part um that the the idea that what happens to you doesn't really or there, that there's no um cathartic benefit of telling someone what you know, happen to you or how you feel about something. Uh, and then, and then supplementing that with like behavioral, uh, modification. Uh, but the idea that you, you can just go in and have someone tell you to like, be mindful of your breathing patterns is, uh, is disheartening. It, you know, if that's what we're working so hard to get, have access to, it might be worth rethinking. Yeah. It's like you go to a normal doctor with something and they're like, well, have you been exercising? It's like a, that's kind of relevant, but not really. Um, but yeah, the- I, I, I went to, I, I've been to a therapist before and they do this thing where they just repeat back to you what you're saying to make you feel. Oh, I, well, the theory is to, you you know, to make you feel understood. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, Oh, I've been super anxious. It sounds like you've, you've been experiencing anxiety. Yeah. It's like, yeah, a, that's what I just said. It's like a robo caller almost. <laughs> right. How can I help you today? Um, but, but around the same time, I remember I, I was, I was experiencing all this, these symptoms of anxiety and I went to, you know, I didn't know, I was sort of new to the anxiety game and I went to a doctor, like a medical doctor and this guy, uh, you know, did all the, the heart tests or whatever. And then he was like, do you like your job? And I was like, what? And he was like, well, you know, tell me about your job. And this is the, the MD, not the psychologist. Yeah. Who's like, uh, understands the connection between, uh, like emotional health, physical health, and your material circumstances. Um, and the, he ended up kind of boldly, maybe, maybe with a boldness not afforded to, um, psychologists, 
he j- he just said, "Well, if you can, you should consider quitting your job." And I was yeah. like, "God damn!" And I did, <laughs> and everything went fine after that. Yeah, yeah, sort of. No, it, yeah, and I don't know. There's those material conditions. You always have to kind of come back to those because it's like there if i'm going to make a purchase over like $200 i agonize about it and i feel like i'm going to fucking die you know like it, it gives me such anxiety i'm like sweating right i remember one time uh, when i was younger i bought a car and it wasn't even like a very nice car and i didn't spend that much money on it but it was like i i was just felt like shit <laughs> while trying to decide whether to pull the trigger and the yeah. salesman's like, sign, sign, sign. And I'm like, Ugh. um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there are, you know, material triggers and, and being mindful can help you, but, but it, there are cases where mindfulness only helps you realize, realize how sort of like fucked the entire system that you exist within is. And it's exactly. not helpful at that point <laughs> when you need like right. some sort of material change, being mindful you just, that you need it isn't very helpful. No, it, 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 mindfulness will lead you to the conclusion that you need a fucking tranquilizer. Yeah, and a lot of doctors, well, again, generalizing, but are pretty pretty quick to pull the trigger on like, oh, well, here is a Zo- Zoloft prescription. <laughs> like, here's some Xanax, whatever. I, I remember listening to a Zizek talk, and I don't know where he got this statistic from, but if it's true, it's devastating. The statistic he spouted was, 70% of academics are on some sort of mood altering drug. <laughs> I don't know. I'd want to see where he got those numbers, but that, uh, that's what I'm saying. I don't know if it's true, but if it's anywhere close, it's like, it's just uh very disheartening. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be super surprised. Um, I would say it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know if that applies to like tenured people at Yale or whatever, but, I could see that, um, especially now that like all the universities are closing because of of uh, COVID nineteen. Yeah. Um, which I, I might have to get a crash course on how to teach my whole course over the internet, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I got uh, Cumberland sent out the, uh, you know, sends out updates every day, and it's looking like we might do the same thing. Yeah. There's only what six weeks left in the semester, so I I don't know. Yeah, and it, it's 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 creating um, you know and this is not super related, but the, but it's sort of showing the cracks in the system for a lot of this stuff. Because um, like Harvard closed its doors and didn't just cancel classes, but you're not allowed to come in. And so there's this sort of idea of well, what about like international students or people that have to live on campus? What happens to them? Bria College in Kentucky had to do or did a similar thing, and they have a very large on-campus population because uh, they have a lot of low-income people, and they require you to live on campus for I think at least the first year. Um, so they just sort of were, were up and like we're canceling it, and we're trying to figure it out as we go along. Um, and that's just in academia, so you can imagine like healthcare and the fact that you can't buy hand sanitizer anywhere. We went to Walgreens, and. I figured they wouldn't have any hand sanitizer and they didn't, but apparently you can make it if you mix like alcohol and aloe vera. 
and we go back to where the alcohol is and there's one bottle in the entire store and it was wow. like winter green alcohol. I have to go get some like uh, Everclear. <laughs> That's what I said. I was like, we'll just go to the liquor store. Everclear and Kool-Aid. That'll <laughs> drink yourself to death before the virus gets you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, I don't know, it's um, exciting times to be living in. Very strange. It's just one shit storm after the next. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. And right now they're voting in a, a lot of states. So we'll see in the primary. So we'll see how that goes. Yep. It's, uh, there's not a shortage of things to pay attention to. Like I uh, watched, uh, democracy. Now I usually that's usually what I watch in the mornings. Just a good sort of summary uh, of everything that went wrong the day before. <laughs> and, uh, there's just so much shit going on. Have you seen the, these Afghanistan papers? Uh, well, I know about the, uh, the treaty or whatever it is, the agreement that we signed, but then that didn't really ease tensions. There's a, there's an article that was published in the Washington post that is very revealing, um, about just the disinformation that was going on and the, uh, basically the last uh, 15 years of our presence in Afghanistan, no one's really known why is the basic conclusion. Oh, that's not surprising in the least. I mean, that's shocking to hear them just say that, but it's like, but no one knows not, you you know what I'm saying? Like there's like several different recorded instances of high officials saying, we don't know who the bad guys are. Oh, yeah. And then, and there's, there needs to be this, this big zoom out where it's like, Oh, we're the bad guys. <laughs> um, the classic skit. Are we, the it's, baddies? it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's terrible. I mean, you think about, but we're like way off base now, but, but if you think about, <laughs> yeah. um, like the original motivation for going to war was sold as we have to get Osama bin Laden and he's in Afghanistan. Which is not yeah, like, and, and he went. He went to Pakistan. They, the, yeah. uh, the U.S. had on good authority that Bin Laden was in Pakistan in 2002, and that's what th- this article is saying. Since 2002, no one's known why we are there. Well, do you, well, we've talked about this, and so have so has everybody else. But remember how the war was sold to us, which was get Bin Laden, but it was also. We have to bring democracy and freedom to the people of, of Afghanistan, specifically the women. We have to go and liberate the women because look at how they're being treated. Look at how they dress. Um, and to this day, that's had, you know, that reverberation where if a woman is wearing a niqab or some other sort of garment, it's automatically assumed that she's incredibly oppressed and the people around her are evil and that sort of stuff. Right. Um, and so it it was sold as this sort of, as basically as a crusade, and that's how a lot of yeah. people who participated probably view themselves uh, as crusaders. Um, and you know now that war, well, first off, never should have happened, but the fact that it's drawn out for twenty years is just like I don't know. There, there, what reason could we have to be there still, other than you know trying to maybe 
trying to patch things up to a level and like duct tape stuff together so we can leave and be like, oh, well, you know, we rebuilt. We <laughs> like, sorry about that, but we made good on it. Uh, but that's impossible because we're still there, still blowing shit up. Right. Yeah. Remember when Trump dropped that like enormous bomb and it was like the strongest non nuclear bomb ever dropped on Afghanistan? And yeah. it was a news story for about 20 minutes. That's how it goes. And, and we're, we bomb a country that we're supposedly, you know, helping to rebuild the infrastructure. What? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I have no idea. And what's you, happening you add on over top there. of that, like you add on top of that, the fact that you know that there are countless people that are using it as a, as a grift, as a money making scheme contractors Dis- and different people disaster capitalism yeah oh yeah which is uh to, to bring everything back to america you know because we're important yeah um, but we've now now america creates the disaster and then takes advantage of it yeah you know there's a nat- natural disaster capitalism is is terrible like you see in puerto rico now but to create the disaster and then capitalize on it is uh a new level of shittiness. Yeah, I was going to say because very recently in in Tennessee, in Nashville, Middle Tennessee area, there was a really horrible tornado. Yeah, um, it was about <laughs> it was about two minutes from me. <laughs> Which is it's kind it of amazing. The shit out of me. I say it's kind of amazing that you your shed just, just didn't like lift up off the ground and blow away with you in it or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not a super safe uh, domicile. Yeah, uh, but. You know, it makes me think of that was the thing with, uh, you know, East Nashville, sort of the hipster part of Nashville, and it was gentrified um, or is continuing to be gentrified. And from what I understand, a big, big uh, help to that was the was prior flooding and tornado in the early 2000s that mm. sort of sort of like in Katrina, right? The the people that were living there had to leave because of this and then their property's damaged. They can't afford to fix it. They have to move. People come in and buy it, rebuild, make it this you know, shiny new marketable thing. And then the, the hipsters come in, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if similar things happen to other parts of the city after this, because I know that some parts were hit pretty hard. Yeah. I, I haven't worked. Uh, we're on spring break now, but I haven't worked in two weeks because they closed, closed the school the rest of the week after the storms hit. Uh, so it's a, I drove through, through Lebanon the other day and it's pretty bad. Yeah. And then Cookville apparently got it the worst or at least had the most fatalities. Uh, so yeah, it's just really, you know, devastating. Uh, and I don't, you know, hesitate to talk about whether or not this was climate change related, maybe with the strength of the storm a little bit, but Tennessee's just has tornadoes sometimes. Um, to, to bring it, yeah, tennis Murfreesboro has been hit several times to bring it back to the film though. Here's the, uh, uh, final paragraph from a, uh, review of the last wave in the guardian it says current concerns about climate change, give the film's prophetic ideas more potency. It was released in the U S with the title black rain, which sounds similarly symbolic. In one of the film's many strange scenes, it is revealed as something 
disturbingly literal. Mm. So there's there's some connection, maybe. Um, you also said crusade earlier, which made me think of the conversation between David and his father, the priest or preacher of some sort. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of yelling at his father because he didn't tell him that there was there were secrets, that there was mystery in the world. And he implies that he, you know, he, the Christianity tries to explain away the mystery rather than embracing it. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was sort of a good connection. And, and this film's got a lot of that, or a lot of things that, that come up in like post-colonial discourse, settler colonial discourse about, you know, the use of religion as a tool of indoctrination. And, and so he comes from, uh, you know, uh, or at least his father was a minister and he was born in South America because he was on a mission, that, that sort of stuff. Um, and I like what you're saying. It's sort of like, a, a he's sort of stiff arming that <laughs> to the side on his way to this, um, way of, of understanding the world. That's more aligned with what he's actually experiencing in real time, uh, in mm-hmm. his dreams and, and also increasingly in his, his everyday reality when he's awake. Um, and it, it's in sort of going back to some things we talked about earlier. It's not that one of those is has to win right it doesn't have to be such a strict dichotomy it's like they each have ways of understanding things that can be useful just in this sense because he's you know materially experiencing those things he has to go with what makes way more sense in the moment right yeah it sort of uh, is making me think about our earlier conversation about the word epistemology and christianity is a a a book-based mythology you know Mm -hmm. um so it seems like maybe maybe that word epistemology uh makes sense in a christian you know christianized culture if you think about like book-based religions which you know there are quite a few of them um versus other belief systems that are more like oral or different kinds of you know modes of recording if they're recorded at all um or, you know, recorded in a traditional sense. But yeah. um, when when they're recorded and sort of put down in words, it makes them sort of more immutable, right? You can't change them. That's blasphemy, that kind of thing. Whereas if they're not as sort of set in stone, you know, no pun intended, then <laughs> then they might have more space to like move and grow and evolve and and, you know, not necessarily uh, change a whole lot, but sort of adapt to things as they're occurring or as they're experienced, that sort of stuff. Um, but you yeah, can't you see, write like you a see Bible, it, a new you Bible. See, yeah, you see it in remake culture. You know, that's that's why movies get remade is because, you know, you don't want one story to be confined to its to a narrow context. Um, and so for instance, like little women has been made, you know, was written in the late 1800s, I believe, maybe or mid 1800s. Um, and you know, now what's a uh, Greta Gerwig just remade it. But I think that has something to do with what you're talking about. Uh, and there's a, you know, a hundred thousands of examples of, of, of remakes. Um, 
but it's uh, allowing the story to adapt to new ideas, new circumstances, new understandings of the world. And, and we have no problem doing that when we understand that the stories are, you know, fiction, little women. Uh, but the real problem in, in Christianity is the supposed infallibility of scripture and the literal interpretation of scripture, which, which sets it in stone and does not make it, uh, an option for updating. Yeah. It's like have a bunch of people read the same short story and then tell you what it's about and what it means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's you'll get some, just a wide range of, of different interpretations and, and different messages taken from it. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising that religion could be so, factious the, the, these are not new ideas <laughs> that, that, that i'm expressing no no i mean i don't uh, i doubt we've ever talked about anything that was a completely original idea well i don't know what was your uh, not what was it timo timos ferratu timos ferratu maybe that word is original but the uh the idea i don't think is is anywhere close so well that's probably as close as we've gotten yep um, um but in this uh to you know bring back to the movie again uh, i think this was a a good choice i think this is you know if you're thinking about films that that sort of challenge western conceptions of the world and and even like climate change films even though this is made in you know the, the late 70s i think this is definitely something that you, that you should look at if you're interested in, in those kinds of, of things in films um and also i don't think it's i don't it's like we were talking about this premonition thing and this lack of understanding as being sort of a, a pretty common trope it's not super prevalent but it does come up you know this idea usually in like a horror movie context um but when it's taken out of that sort of ooh spooky scary context um it can be used for really sort of interesting things and challenging people's uh, perceptions of the world in movies like take shelter and in this um, and another comparison I, I meant to make and this might be a good segue uh is don't look now nicholas rogues don't that's, look now that's what i was trying to get you to think of earlier okay yeah um which is you know a, a, a 70s i believe that was 72 or 73 but it's you know about the protagonist the western white male protagonist kind of confronting um non-linear time and non-rational ways of of understanding life um, in, in a very different way, and and like you're saying, in a horror context, um, but feels feels similar. Yeah, and and so taken out of that horror context, or you know maybe maintaining it a little bit, 
Um, and something like Gun Island, I think, is going to be a really useful tool in representing climate change in fiction kind of going forward um, because it allows you to use something that's a trope that's already sort of established and, and more or less understood and use it for a different kind of purpose, which is to sort of open people's minds to these other ways of understanding things um, and understanding their place within them, uh, like we talked about with, with Dean and Gun Island. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a good sort of appropriation of that trope in order to accomplish this different kind of goal. And it really seems like the real villain is dualism. And I, it seems to me, you know, I, I, maybe I'm an exception because I kind of am immersed in this conversation, but, um, it seems like everything I read lately is just really problematizing dualism. Um, I've been reading that Jason Moore capitalism and the web of life, um, which is, you know, very much about understanding capitalism, not working upon nature, but working through nature. Um, and, and so we are, you know, Capitalism is not this like separate thing. It can only exist um, alongside or, or, or within nature. It like capital is nature. Um, consumers are nature and are impacted by nature. Anyway, I, I, I've been reading that. I've been reading. Uh, Val Plumwood, who, you know, that's her whole thing, really, um, is problematizing rationalism and dualism. I, I just read a, a, a book called The Inflamed Mind. It's this new sort of theory on, on, uh, the kind of physiology of depression and, half the book is about Descartes and dualism. Um, it's just, it just seems like more people are kind of waking up to this idea that progress cannot be made, uh, in any context. If we do not understand ourselves as part of the world, part of what we call the environment and, and really the word environment kind of reinforces that dualism. Um, but it seems like people are becoming more willing to to think harder and uh, in a more complex way that uh, understands human beings as constantly in relationship to everything else, as opposed to um, you know, sort of players on the stage of history. Yeah, and I think of of things like uh, Moore's book and other stuff like that. They're not you know, new ideas, they're just sort of new branches of the same idea, that, that idea that, uh, you know, uh, changing the, our orientation to the land, changing our understanding of there being some sort of imagined separation between us and the land, that sort of stuff. Because uh, like I was, we were saying earlier, it's not a new concept, um, but it keeps, it's sort of infinitely complicated kind of because we've made it so um, so it takes somebody like Moore to come in and, and tell us how 
capitalism is, is capital is sort of woven into this and has become sort of its own entity with agency that we can't control and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And he, he makes a really good point about how so many people, myself included, kind of uh, jump right to the industrial revolution as kind of the, the boogeyman of capitalism uh, or the, the sort of birth of exploit exploitative uh, capitalism. And, and he writes a lot about plantation culture oh, yeah. uh, and, and how that is, you know, if, if anywhere is the beginning, that's the beginning of capitalism seizing nature. Oh yeah. And that's, uh, the, the term plantation scene or plantation scene mm-hmm. as opposed to Anthropocene has come up a lot in academic circles. It, it's, I, I like those discussions. I think they're important, but at some point I sort of, I sort of start thinking, why does it matter what we call it? <laughs> like, like, let's just figure out what to do about it, how to live in it. Yeah. More, I think more favors, uh, capital Ocene because it, he, I, I've heard him and Donna Haraway use that term and they justify it by saying Anthropocene makes it sound like people are the problem. Um, like the people are the problem when really it is, they, they say it's, it's not people. It is, uh, capitalists essentially who have organized the world, uh, in this destructive way. Um, so that, that's, that's their rationalization. Yeah. And it, so maybe we should, maybe we should call this, uh, capital scenes. <laughs> yeah. And you think about the people that are very against overpopulation and that's like their big thing that they think is the problem, even though it's mm-hmm. wrong for a lot of reasons. Um, that that's because they're buying into this idea. Like you're saying that the problem is people. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is not that, you know, in and of itself, it's these systems that we've created and those at the top who keep perpetuating them, though. That's the, the issue. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we solved it. I think. Got we, it. I think we did it. I think just uh, it's, uh, fix it now, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we're done talking about the movie. Yeah. And our. our uh our don't look now discussion, uh, I think is a good segue into next week. Yes. So in thinking about what we wanted to do, uh, took inspiration from the last wave and, in, in Australian cinema, which has a lot of sort of unknown underrated jewels. Um, and so what we're going to do next week is watch walkabout from 1971, uh, directed by the aforementioned, uh, I forgot his first name. Nicholas Rogue. Nicholas Rogue. Um, another Australian filmmaker. Um, and then it, also this is um, I'm all over the place. Uh, this movie also has uh, David Gopalil um, in a, a pretty pretty prominent role in the film. Um, I don't know a whole lot. I, I sort of have a rough outline of, of what the plot is. And I know that it's a really well-respected movie. It's a criterion selection. So it's got to have something going for it. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Um, I know Corey loves, uh, Nicholas rogue and, uh, I'll see if I can get him to 
give me some uh, some Nicholas Rogue background, that sort of stuff. Um, give you the Rogue down. Yeah. Going Rogue, yeah, he, rogue Nation. Rogue also did, uh, you mentioned Don't Look Now, but also did The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. The Bowie, yeah. which is why probably why Corey loves him so much. But <laughs> I guess so. Um, I, he Corey's obsessed with Don't Look Now. That's, that's like that. his favorite one. Yeah, I've heard you talk about it so much. I need to just go watch it so I can know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, don't don't research it before you watch it, because um, it's it's one of those movies that can sort of get ruined in a way if you see the the scene you're not supposed to see. Ah, uh, okay. I'll have to. I mean, I won't do that. Oh, but I meant to. I meant to bring this up uh, in the last wave. Does it rain frogs? Yeah, in his like dream, in, like in Magnolia. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I did not know that that was, uh, had ever been shown in a film before. Yeah, uh, yeah, I noticed that too, and then I kind of forgot about it. But yeah, it rains frogs in his dream at one point, which is, you know, biblical illusion, but also makes us think of Magnolia. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember reading that. Uh, there's all these, you know, signs in Magnolia that say Exodus 8-2, and which is, you know, the Bible verse where... Uh, mentions frog rain but i remember reading that paul thomas anderson did not know that it was in the bible until like someone else read the script and like told him um which which i thought i thought was interesting so it like wasn't it wasn't a a reference to the bible uh originally that's really weird yeah I think, but it, like it rained, like frog rain is a real thing. Um, and he had read about it in some book. I think the last time it happened was in Mexico. And, uh, it was the wrong the, book. What's that? It was the wrong book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I think there's like a, some sort of myth about frog rain and the supposed place where the frogs uh, stay, where they reside in the sky is called Magonia, M-A-G-O-N-I-A, and was sort of weirdly similar to Magnolia. Um, anyway, <laughs> little history is about this, frog rain. There. Is, it, is, is this your religion? What's, <laughs> what's happening? Uh... No, I'm not. I'm not super religious, but I am an alcoholic. So, in a great joke in Kingpin that we didn't really bring up, where he's like, "No, no, I don't really uh, not drink anymore." Why are you buying? <laughs> um, uh, so, I guess. I mean, I guess that's all we got. Um, so, the last wave. You know, I'd I'd recommend it. It's not my favorite movie we've ever watched, but it's solid. No, it's no Biodome. No. What is? We're talking about the greats, right? Biodome. Yeah. Um, Encino Man. Boondock Saints. Boondock Saints. <laughs> uh, what are some other like masterpieces of cinema? I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Uh, you don't mess with the Zohan. <laughs> Ugh. Hot Rod. Hot Rod's legitimately good. Is it? I, it's been a long time. Well, I don't know. I It's... I remember liking it. It, it. That might be a kingpin scenario where it's not as good as I remember. You know uh, what movie I guarantee is like that is uh, Grandma's Boy. Mm, 
Maybe I, I bet I remember laughing when I was like 18 or whatever, but I bet it's just unwatchable now. Got, gotta be. Gotta be. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're done. Oh, hold on. You know what I watched the other night? We got to do it for the podcast for no reason. Jensen and I watched it for real, and it's actually still good. Saving Silverman. Mm. That is a masterpiece of a yes. film. I'm not eating that shit. I want Arby's. <laughs> I want a big Montana with curly fries. Uh, yeah, well, well, sure. Think about a way to to like make it make sense. I think <laughs> I think we just need to have uh, we we both of us need to have a wild card week where whenever you, uh, we're introducing next week's film, the other person can interrupt and say and pull the pull the wild card and say nope. Next week we're doing, you know, Saving Silverman or Joe Dirt or whatever. Joe Dirt. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. We'll do that. <laughs> uh, but for next week, we're watching Walkabout. And then after that, it's it's open season. Yeah. Yeah, uh, with uh, the cartoon characters where they're like trying to. That's going to be my pick. <laughs> uh, so next week, open season, nineteen seventy-one. Nicholas Rogue. I think you mean walk walkabout. Fuck what I say. You said open season, Nicholas Rogue. Shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> walkabout. Walkabout. <laughs> Nicholas Rogue. Next We're week. Talk about walkabout. Yes. 